We are continuing our study through Revelation, and uh, just to catch you up to speed with where we've been, if you haven't been here, um, we've said, if we look at the next major events on God's timeline of events, the things to happen, we have the rapture. The rapture is a time where both those who have died and those who are still living during the church age will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord, and they'll forever be with Him. We said immediately after that, after the rapture, the next event on His timeline is a seven-year period called the tribulation period. It's a period um, that is broken up into two parts. The first three and a half years is sometimes known as the uh, beginning of sorrows, and the last three and a half years is often called the Great Tribulation. And um, the period of time that we're looking at in chapter 9 is during the Great Tribulation period. Uh, this seven-year period called the Tribulation is a period where God will use it to judge the earth for its wickedness. He will send plagues, he'll send natural disasters, there will be wars, um, It'll be a frightening time during this seven-year period, unlike anything this world has ever seen before. Each event that takes place during the tribulation period will be a judgment for both Jews and Gentiles who choose to reject, or so far have chosen to reject God's offer of salvation. These judgments are described as seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bull judgments. There are seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bowl judgments. Each judgment's either, um, each one of these is either a judgment upon the earth or it could just be a major event that takes place. And uh, what's interesting is when we find, we get through the first seven seals, when we break open that seventh seal, we find that contained within it are seven trumpet judgments. And when we get to the seventh trumpet judgment, it breaks open to reveal that contained within it are seven bowl judgments. Um, so far, up till chapter 9, we have seen that Jesus Christ has broken open the first seven seals to then reveal that there are seven trumpet judgments, and he has gone up as far as the first four trumpet judgments. Just to recap, just for those, just to remind ourselves what's already taken place on the earth thus far, we have so far, with the seal, first seal being broken, you have the appearance of the Antichrist onto the world stage where he offers false peace that he eventually breaks and goes back on. The second seal broken reveals war, brutal killings, anarchy. Uh, third seal is broken and there is famine and extreme inflation beyond anything that we have ever witnessed before. The fourth seal is broken and a quarter of the world's population is killed by sword, by hunger, and by the beasts of the earth. If it were to happen today, that would be two billion people dead in one judgment. The fifth seal is the cry of the martyrs for God to avenge them of their blood that was spilled. The sixth seal is a great earthquake, great cosmic disturbances. You'll have the sun become black like uh, the sun becomes black, the, uh, the moon becomes like blood, stars falling from the sky to the earth. You have uh, the, the sky rolled up like a scroll. Every mountain and island is displaced. The seventh seal, as we said, contains the seven trumpets. It is open and there is a time of silence for 30 minutes in heaven. After the silence ends, the first trumpet is blown. Each of the seven angels are given one trumpet to sound. The first trumpet is sounded and there is a third of the trees and all of the green grass are burned up. The second trumpet sounds and a third of the seas become blood. A third of the sea life is killed and a third of the ships are destroyed. The third trumpet sounds and you have a third of the rivers, a third of the fresh waters um, causing death because they've been poisoned. The fourth trumpet, this is the most recent one we just read last week, the fourth trumpet sounds and a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars were darkened by this judgment and it's as if all the things that people naturally expect that just happen every day. We wake up and the sun shines. The sunset happens at you know, the end and we have the moon that rises. The stars in the sky, just having fresh drinking water. All these things that we have come to expect will no longer be there. It will, on earth, no longer be business as usual. This will be a day 
um, unlike anything we've ever seen before. And it's interesting that so far in these four trumpet judgments that we've seen thus far, it deals primarily with destroying parts of creation like the fresh water, the sun, the moon, the stars, all the things that mankind needs to sustain life. And now God is going to directly turn his attention in these next two trumpet judgments, in judgments five and six, directly towards mankind. Um, in Revelation, just as a real quick ending to what we read last week, Revelation 8 ends in verse 13 by having the angel saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So if you thought what already has taken place, my recap of what took place was already horrific, if you thought it was already bad enough, it's saying you haven't seen the worst yet. The worst is still yet to come. Because now it's going to be directly affecting those who remain on the earth. Woe is not a word that we always use, but you could just say it means great calamity, anguish, grief, affliction, judgment, to the inhabitants of the earth, to the earth dwellers. Earth dwellers are those who, could be better just stated as those whose only hope, those whose only future is built upon this earth alone. Those whose only outlook or hope in life is found here on this earth. Those who have made their eternal home here on earth. Those who are, better said, to those who are not true believers in Jesus Christ. And God is saying, woe to those people because of the remaining three trumpets and because how horrific and terrifying they are. Before I even begin just reading what's about to take place, though, I want to remind you that we're only going to read the first two of these three woes. But I want to emphasize that the reason God is bringing about these judgments, the reason God is reminding his reader of what's to come, is because he is warning people out of mercy. God is warning people of the judgment to come, and he warns them that, you know what, you still have time now to repent of your sins. You still have now have time to believe upon the Lord, to be saved from the next judgment to come. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, kind of highlights the heart of God, and it's always been about repentance. It says here, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And although this is written to Israel, it's still the longing, not just for Israel, but for all mankind. Oh, that mankind would turn from their evil ways, turn from their wicked ways, and trust in the Lord. The Lord, as it says in other parts of the Bible, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God is using these judgments to remove the comforts, to remove all the things that mankind would hold on to. You know, when, it's, when you have money in your bank, when you have fresh water going, when you have you know, a heater that works at home, when you have food in your, in your fridge, when you have all these comforts, it is very easy to think that, well, I can support myself, I can sustain myself, I don't need God. But you'll see that as people are stripped away of some of these things, that's when it brings them to their knees. It was, when it causes them to cry out to God is when these things that they come to expect are stripped away. And that's what God is doing here. He is stripping away all these comforts, all these things that would cause them to ignore their sin, that would cause them to ignore their need for God. And God is stripping it all away. And, and now God is making it plain and simple to those people. Now that I've stripped it away, it is me who has been judging you. It is me who has caused this to happen so that you would bring about the repentance, so that I would bring about a desire to change, a desire to see that my sin separates me from God. And God is using these for anyone who is still softened in their heart to, to turn, to repent of their sins. The fifth judgment, the fifth trumpet judgment is the first woe. The sixth trumpet judgment is the second woe, and the third judgment, which we'll talk about in later chapters, will come to find is the, uh, the third woe being the seventh trumpet judgment, which contains all of the bold judgments. 
So three more woes to come upon the earth. Let, it, let us just look at the first of the two that we'll look at today in Revelation 9. And we'll be reading the first 12 verses just to look at the first uh, woe. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to, to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came out of the earth, came upon the earth. To them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. And they were not a given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sounds of their wings was like that of the sounds of chariots, with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and, they were st- and there were stings in their tail. Their power was to hurt men five months, and they had king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek his name is Apollyon. One woe has passed. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. So it's a lot. It's a lot of what's to happen. Um, the chapter begins with him blowing the trumpet, the angel blowing the trumpet, and John first says that he sees a star fallen from heaven to the earth. I have seen my share of falling stars, uh, and actually the people in the tribulation period will have seen many stars falling from heaven. Uh, in, in, the, in the sixth seal judgment, it says that stars are falling from heaven like a fig tree when it's, uh, when it's ripe for fruit, when it's shaken in the wind. There will be already judgments of fallen stars, but this is not like any star they've seen before. This is not one of these falling stars in a literal sense um, because this star is different in the sense where it says to him, meaning that it's a person, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. This star is better yet a, uh, an angelic being. And this would not be the first time that God uses an angel or uses the term star to describe an angel. You have in Job chapter 38, verse 7, we read that um, the morning stars, or the angels, were singing when God laid the foundations of the world. It says in Job 38, 8, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. There was this time of just a joyous occasion of praising God as he laid the foundation of the earth. But the term morning stars refers to angelic beings. And so the angels here are described as stars, and again, we hear, have here in Revelation the term being used of a star, a star that has fallen from heaven to the earth. So since we know it's a person, who is this fallen star? And I believe Isaiah 14, uh, verses 12 through 15, answer for us by describing an event that took place before mankind was even created. Um, and this event describes this person. It says in Isaiah 14, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. On the farthest side of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet, you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Satan is that fallen star. Satan was once this wonderful angelic being. But, as you remember, he became proud. He was discontent, dissatisfied with the position that God gave him. And he led a rebellion along, not just himself, but a third of the angels he brought along with him 
to rebel against God, to, uh, to attempt to usurp his position that he had. And Satan and his angels were cast out of heaven, we read. Jesus even described Satan falling from heaven in Luke 10, verse 18. He said, and he's saying this to his disciples, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now with Satan's unsuccessful attempt to, uh, to, to revolt against God, leading this third of the angels away, they've now been kicked out of heaven, it would appear that Satan's dealings with heaven are over. It would appear that that's the last that they would have seen of him. But if you read the rest of the Bible, it's clear that Satan's punishment comes in stages. While you could say that Satan and his demons are no longer given the ability to be residents, continually living before God, you could still say that they are given visitation abilities. Because up until this point, they still have that ability. If you, if you think back even to Job chapter 2, Satan comes before the Lord and accuses Job. And he says, does, does Job fear you for nothing? Is it not because you give him these things that he does these things, that he praises you, that he serves you? And, and Satan is described as the accuser of the brethren, constantly going before God and saying, look at your child, look what he just did. He, he just sinned. How can you love him? How can you still call him your own? And he goes before, apparently according to the Bible, he goes before him day and night accusing believers of wrongdoing, of, of just different things that we've done, just like he did with Job. And um, here we have, though, uh, a time where, you know, Satan, he loves to do this. And up until this point, up until this fifth trumpet happens, he is given this ability to continue going back and forth between the earth and heaven. Um, but we know that at the start of this trumpet, the access is cut off. In Revelation 12, it tells us more clearly kind of what's happening as it shows, you know, we see this picture of a star fallen from heaven. Now we see kind of clearly uh, what, what caused that. In, in Revelation 12, it gives us more insight of a war that breaks out in heaven. And in Revelation 12, verse 8, Michael and his archangel fought against Satan and his rebellious angels, and it says that Satan and his demons did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the world, was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night has been cast down. So, that is kind of what happens right before this trumpet blows. Is essentially, God's dealings with allowing Satan to continue to visit and accuse the brethren has been cut off. And his demonic uh, followers have also been cast down to the earth. But there is a warning. While there is this rejoicing in heaven, there is a warning to those who remain on the earth. And that's found in Revelation 12, 12, right after that. It says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell. There's good rejoicing there. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and to the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. So Satan knows the gig is almost up. He knows that he can only do this for so much longer. And from here on out, Satan and his demonic followers um, remain solely on the earth with the purpose of bringing havoc with the purpose of drawing men and women away from the truth of the gospel. Satan is that fallen star from heaven to the earth. Not only is he that fallen star, he is also given the key to the bottomless pit. It says, to him, that is the star, was given the key to the bottomless pit. And then verse 2, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened, because of the smoke of the pit. And here we are introduced to the bottomless pit now being opened. And uh, really the best way to describe what's happening here is that, and I don't mean this lightly, but that all hell is basically breaking loose. 
To understand what, what is described here, it, it was best described as all hell breaking loose. The bottomless pit, just so we kind of know what it is, the bottomless pit is a place of confinement for fallen angels who are awaiting judgment. 2 Peter 2 verse 4 says about angels who reside there, For if God did not spare the angel who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness, some interpretations say delivered them into pits of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Um, so God already in the past tense has cast down certain demonic beings into hell, into pits of darkness. When Peter uses the word hell, he's using the word tartos, which is a place to describe a subterranean place lower than the ground where the most vile and wicked um, rebellious beings would be sent. During Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus speaks of hell using the word Gehenna, which is a word that the Greek reader would understand, or the, the Jewish person would understand as the, uh, this ever-burning dump in Jerusalem, an unending flame filled with garbage and filth. And so to describe hell, he's bringing about, Jesus is bringing the, the Jewish reader vernacular that they would understand and uh, we have here Peter bringing in vernacular that the Greek reader would understand to describe a place of lowest, of, of just torment in the lowest place possible, a place of punishment, a place of incarceration. The Bible seems to suggest that the bottomless pit and hell are one and the same, a place where demonic powers are kept until their final day of judgment, where then they will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. To further support that idea, Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So the bottomless pit is one and the same with hell. And out of that pit comes demonic beings. Demonic beings um, are being held there, but... It is, it is true, though, that there are still demonic beings that remain on the earth. If you think about um, Jesus' time when he was preaching and, and teaching while he was on this earth, during his earthly ministry, we read about some of these demonic beings and uh, that they go about doing Satan's work. We read about one in Luke 8, where Jesus encounters a man who is possessed by multi a multitude of demons, and Jesus asks him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him, that is the demons begged him, that he would not command them to go down into the abyss. These demons, present day, are, are roaming the earth, unchained, not in the bottomless pit, but they are aware of this abyss where others have been cast. They're aware of the torment that they endure. They are aware that they're being held against their will and they have no desire to go there. There's other demons that are described in uh, Matthew 8 where as they see Jesus walk by, it says, and they suddenly cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? So the fact that we see demonic beings possessing people, interacting um, and even saying by their own words that they know that there are those demons who are being chained, shows us that there are both demons presently freely roaming, doing the will of Satan, and there are those who have been chained and reserved by God uh, in pits uh, reserved for his timing. Which you can only imagine, though, that if those are allowed to roam freely and they cause evil, how much more evil are those who are chained and kept in that pit until God allows them to. They must be the most vile of all demonic beings. Um, and God has reserved them and placed them in chains until a specific time. And uh, it appears that these demons are kept to prevent even worse chaos from coming upon the earth. Because as soon as the fifth trumpet blows, the chaos they bring is really unimaginable. 
But in some ways, as you look at that, you're, just, you're, you're realizing that God, even now, is restraining the evil that could come about. That there are only a certain amount of demonic beings on the earth, but there's going to come a time where God will allow demonic beings to come out of the pit and begin tormenting men and women. Uh, up until this time, though, God still has been mercifully holding back. And when Satan now is given the key to the bottomless pit, it is open, smoke fills the skies, and it says that it was smoke coming, filling the skies as if a massive furnace, which makes sense with the fiery description that we have of hell throughout the rest of the Bible. The smoke coming from this furnace is so intense that the sun and the air are darkened. And it says, out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power, and they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. I just want to be clear that these are not ordinary locusts. It is clear from the rest of the text that John is doing his very best to describe what these demonic beings look like. The locusts described here are demonic beings, the vilest of the fallen angels, who have been bound possibly for centuries to only now be released by God. And God is using this again as a judgment, but with the hopes to draw mankind back to himself, to cause them to repent of their sins, to get their attention, to cause them to repent and look to him for salvation. So what do we know about these demonic beings? This is just an artist's rendition of it. Um, may not be 100% accurate, but this is as close to a rendition as we have. Um, the first thing is that they are given power or sting. They're given the power or the sting of a scorpion to inflict pain on mankind. The reason I say these are not typical locusts is because locusts don't typically have stings. Also, unlike locusts, they don't go after the grass. They don't go after trees. They don't go after vegetation, all of which is very typical dietary things that locusts would eat. Instead, they are commanded, these demonic beings are commanded to harm men who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. That is to say that anyone who does not identify themselves with Christ, they are under attack. It means that all those who are unbelievers at the time will be under this, this judgment. And these demonic uh, beings were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion. When it strikes a man in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. A demon's purpose, their goal in life, is to naturally kill and destroy. But in this case, God is holding back in, 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 in some ways a merciful way in only allowing them to be tormented for five months. The period that five months, it does align with a, a locust's typical uh, life between May and September. A locust typically has a lifespan of that. Um, commentators, though, largely agree upon the fact that the torment described of this five months, the, the, the torture, the torment they're experiencing, is demonic possession for five months. These demons um, cause extremely powerful uh, torments. They, they're known, even in the, the New Testament, they're known to instrict, ins, inflict extreme pain. They're know, known to cause people to lose control of their physical abilities where they are seizing, convulsing, flailing, being thrown to the ground. You see some of them being thrown into the fires. Um, they're just tormented, unable to control themselves any longer. Um, these demons not only just cause physical suffering, but also mental anguish to the people that they um, are, have chosen as their host. You see that in the case of Legion. He was just in anguish as he, as he waits you know, for Jesus to heal him. What I do find most fearful, though, about this um, judgment is that the suffering will be so severe, so horrendous, that men and women will wish they were dead. In fact, they will seek to commit suicide, but death will escape them. 
They might try throwing themselves off a building. They may try pulling a trigger. But no matter what they do, God says clearly they will not die. They'll try and inflict severe harm upon themselves, but death will not come to them. All suicide attempts, all attempts to escape God's wrath, uh, to take the easy way out, if you will, God's going to ensure that every man and woman endures the torment and the judgment that he has rightfully imposed upon them. There is no escaping God's wrath. There is no escaping his judgment. Men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The remaining verses describe, so I mean, it tells us what's going to happen. They're going to be tormented for five months, but it gives a a description following the, the judgment. And I think the description not only just relates to us the, the vast number of demonic beings that would have to be there to possess uh, the, the worldwide population, but also the description provokes fear in the heart of mankind for what's to come. The demons, it says, are like, and each of these descriptions um, just kind of gives us a new characteristics of what it's like. This is another uh, visualization of what it could be like, what each one might look like. But um, the demonic beings... Um, have, it says, horses prepared for battle. They are they're fierce and uh, unafraid. On their heads, they have something like crowns of gold. This is a picture of them ruling over the people they possess. They have faces like men. These are intelligent beings. Having hair like women's hair. There is something attractive, something seducing about them. In fact, actually, 1 Timothy 4 describes demons as seducing spirits. They have teeth like lion's teeth. They are ferocious. They're cruel beings. They have breastplates like that of iron. They're they're difficult to attack. They're difficult to destroy. Those who have been possessed by them, they will attempt to kill them, and they will not be able to. They will not find death. Their sounds of their wings are like chariot sounds with many horses. They are they're terrifying, demoralizing beings. These would be extremely fearful things to encounter. Um, they have tails like that of scorpions. Like I said, they are capable of inflicting both mental and physical anguish upon the person they, they possess. And, and as a reminder again, their power was to hurt men for five months, emphasizing, though, that it's going to be unrelenting suffering and torment to all of those who are unsaved on the earth. That is the reality of what a demonic being is. They are pure evil. They are pure wickedness. They come to kill, to destroy, to bring misery to their hosts. And as leader over these demonic beings, it says, they had king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek has the name Apollyon. The king over them, Apollyon, means destruction. Apollyon in Greek means destroyer. It is widely believed by many very well-known commentators that the king over the bottomless pit is indeed the one whose name is destruction and destroyer is indeed Satan himself. And this period of time, I believe, is really the unmasking of who Satan is. Because up until this point, Satan has been able to appear, or as it says, transform himself as an angel of light. He entices people by thinking that sin is harmless. Sin is good for you. Sin is something you're missing out on. Sin is fun. It's enjoyable. Sin is pleasurable. But now we can clearly see that Satan, in the end, despite all this masquerading, besides all this appearance to be good, he is deep down bent upon bringing destruction and upon destroying those who follow after him. First Peter gives this warning to believers, but it really is for anyone. It says in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan is pure evil. He seeks to kill and destroy those who will follow after him. And for this first time in history... Those who do not know the Lord, those who refuse to repent, will come upon a worldwide demonic possession and affliction. And Satan and his armies of demonic beings will only bring about harm and destruction to those they possess. 
A very famous uh, commentator on Revelation, Walverd, says this about this time. What is true in this hour is also true in some measure today. For there is no deliverance from the power of Satan, nor from his affliction, apart from the salvation in Christ and the delivering power of God. Only God can deliver a person from Satan. Only, a, only God can deliver a person from the power that he holds over a person. Verse 12 says, One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. This is just one. One of three woes. There is still two more to come. And already, what a desperate situation this would be upon the earth. For those who don't know Christ, for those who would have to endure this, what a fearful time it would be to know that God is judging you for your wickedness, and you cannot escape his judgment. One woe is past, two to come. Just as the world is trying to recover from the last judgment, here we have, then the sixth angel sounded in verse 13, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which are before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, day, and month, and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The, uh, the sixth angel sounds, he blows his trumpet. John hears a voice uh, from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. In Revelation 8, verse 3, we, re- we talked about this actually two weeks ago, but the altar described here is a place where incense would be offered. But along with the incense were also the prayers of the saints before God. And if you remember... In, um, in the fifth seal judgment, there are those martyrs coming before God, coming before the altar and pleading with God that God would avenge their blood, that God would avenge those who killed them. Um, they say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And it appears that at least in part that the sixth trumpet judgment we see here is at least in part God's answer Uh, to the prayers of the martyrs, to those who have been persecuted. The full fulfillment of God's uh, judgment will come to pass at the great white throne judgment. But at least for now, in part, this is God's response to the cruelty and the wickedness of mankind who has killed uh, those who have trusted in Christ. So in response, the sixth angel uh, looses the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. These angels that have been bound are wicked, demonic angels because there are no instances in the Bible where there are holy angels who have been bound. Uh, However, on the flip side, there are many instances where we see um, ungodly angels being bound. For example, we read in Jude 6 today that the angels who left their abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains. Uh, we see in Second uh, Peter 2, we talked about that, that he delivered them uh, into chains of darkness. We also read in Revelation 20, towards the end of Revelation, it tells us of, of a time where Satan will be bound. It said, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. So there are clear instances in where God has bound wicked angels. And God has prepared these four angels for a specific year, specific month, specific day, and a specific hour he has for them. He has prepared them in the same way that God prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, when Jonah had chosen to go off and and go a different route than God chose for him. In that same way that God prepared that, God has prepared these angels for judgment. And I think that's, to me, that's so remarkable that God's timing is so precise. These angels have been bound probably for centuries with the very purpose of executing God's judgment. And he has waited for a specific year month, day, and hour of when he would release them. And it's not going to happen until he says so. Only God knows the time, 
But it just shows that God is in control of everything. God is in control of his judgments even. He knows the time and he will not let it happen a minute before it's ready. And when God gives the word, they are released to kill a third of mankind. Up until now, this is probably the most devastating judgment that has occurred in the book of Revelation. Earlier, in the fourth seal judgment, a fourth of the world's population was killed off. As we said, that, is, that would be, if today it happened, that is um, two billion people dead in one judgment. And now we're learning that on top of those two billion that were just killed, what remains of the earth, now a third more is killed off. I'm not a math person, but if you take eight billion and you lose a quarter, you're down to six. Let, let's just assume and pretend that no one else dies, just so we keep a whole number. Let's pretend between those two judgments, no one else dies. You're still at six million, or six billion, I'm sorry. If you lose a third of that, you're down to four billion people. Half the world's population is gone. Very likely, though, it would be much less than half because of all the other judgments that occur in between that time, from the loss of ships to the loss of fresh drinking water to the loss of trees to the loss of um, rivers and seas and marine life, you're down to less than half of the world's population in just two of these judgments. And um, at this point in time, you know, I, I looked yesterday and it said that throughout the pandemic, there was an estimate seven million people who died. And they were on the news showing in certain countries how they just... They couldn't bury them fast enough. They couldn't find spaces. So then they had tractors digging up holes and just pushing them all into it. Can you imagine with half the workforce left trying to find a place to bury four billion bodies? Where, where would you even put it? You couldn't. You couldn't bury them fast enough. They'd be dying too quickly. And then the stench that would be there and then the diseases that would fester from these dead bodies. I mean, this is a, a very grim picture we're painting of what's left on this earth. Um, it's horrific, unlike anything this world has ever seen. We thought we had it bad with the, the pandemic, but this is unlike anything we've ever seen. And if you're an unbeliever today and you hear of these judgments, and if it doesn't just rattle you to your core, I don't know what will. If this doesn't bother you, if it doesn't cause your soul to be concerned about whether or not you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I don't know what will. Because this... This, tr this should be troubling to your soul to know that God, if you don't know him, will inflict judgment like described here in the, just these two. And, and there are still seven more judgments to come after this. At this time, a holy, righteous God is enacting judgment, and in just two judgments, half the world's population is gone. If you, if you don't have a relationship with God today, my plea with you is to get right with him today. My plea with you is that he offers you grace. He offers you mercy still today. He freely extends it to anyone who will come to him. Get right with God today. He is still freely offering salvation. The scene of judgment continues by introducing a massive army that will assist these four angels in their killings. We read in verses 16 through 19, now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hastened blue, sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouth came fire, smoke, brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By, their, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. <coughs> For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. This is just an artist's rendition of what John is describing in the back. We will put up in a second. But John first describes this army of 200 million horses with their riders. This would be the largest army ever constructed. Um, to put this in perspective, I looked at uh, uh, a reading in USA Today, <clears throat> of, and this is just from last year. 
of the top three countries with the largest active duty military personnel. And, and the list goes as follows, just for the top three. China, with currently 200, or sorry, with currently 2 million active military personnel. India, with 1.45 million active military personnel. And the US, with 1.39 million active personnel. <clears throat> so if you were just to add those three together, you have less than 5 million active personnel. We do have, obviously, reserves and other things like that. But with a population of 8 billion people currently, the top three world powers, top three countries with the largest military, do not even surpass 5 million. But at the sound of the sixth trumpet, there will be an army the size of 200 million. No army this size has ever been amassed. And because of that, a lot of people would say that this is not a literal number. Rather, they would just say, well, it's John's way of saying this is just a way of saying it's a really large amount of people. Yet, John says here that it was, uh, he says, it was 200 million. He said, I heard the number of them, meaning that John was told that this is a literal army of 200 million horsemen. So the number of 200 million should be a literal number that is taken very literally. Uh, with a closer up view, this is maybe maybe less cartoonish and maybe more of what each would look like, there would be, uh, Luke, the next slide, there would be um, 200 million riders on these horse-like beings. Um, the riders, it says, were wearing breastplates of fiery red, hastened blue, and sulfur yellow. The horses are having heads similar to that of a lion's head, and the mouth of the horses uh, came fire, brimstone, and uh, smoke, which would be used to kill people, which is uh, infectiously how a third of the world is killed off at that point. The tails of the horses are similar to that of a serpent having a head at the very end that is used to harm mankind. Essentially, what it's saying is that on both ends, front and back, these creatures, these beings in this army are given the ability to harm mankind, to kill mankind. Um, anyone who encounters this will likely be killed off by it. So, what exactly is this horse and rider? Some would speculate uh, that it is John's very best explanation of what modern warfare is. He would, some would suggest this is tanks. These are certain types of weaponry that John had never seen before, so this is his best way of introducing that. Um, while I believe it is possible... I do believe that there is enough evidence to suggest that this is not a human army with modern weapons, but I would rather suggest that it is a demonic army that is invading the earth. And I, I'll explain why I say that. The first reason I would say that is because demonic possession and torture that was previously described in the uh, fifth trumpet was only allowed to happen for five months. After that, they are free to roam, free to do their own thing. So there would be not only just the number but there would also be the availability by them to, to, to commit this judgment. Um, as we said earlier about the active duty military, the world can't even currently pass 5 million with the top three. It seems very unlikely they would reach 200 million um, with half the world's population left or less. Um, the description also, though, the reason I say it is, the description also is fairly demonic in nature. You see the tails are like serpents, and they're breathing out things similar to that described in hell, like fire, brimstone, smoke. Um, so all of these um, descriptions remind us of the demonic beings that were just recently loosed from the bottomless pit. Um, additionally, I say this because... The judgment um, appears to be paired with God's disapproval for demonic worship. And uh, we see that in, in verse 20 of Reve in this chapter, in verse 20, the very first thing that God has against the world at the time is that they did not forsake worshiping of demons. And it appears as though this is in part a, a judgment upon the world for that very sin. And um, in some ways, you could see that this judgment would be God giving mankind the desires of their heart. You'll find that often God does do this. When mankind refuses to follow God, when they refuse to repent of their sins, 
when they refuse to submit to him, when they refuse to leave behind the desires of their flesh, God will give them what they will ask for. It won't be good for them, but God will give free will to all mankind. And at this time, it is noted that men and women worship demons, and God is essentially saying, look, if you want to worship demons, if you want to continue in that practice, if you would rather serve them than serve the God who created you, if you'd rather have them be the master over you, then okay, fifth trumpet occurs. I will let them possess you. I will let them torture you for five months. If you want to continue in that, the sixth trumpet will come, and I will allow a third of mankind to be killed off by these very demons you worship. And so here we have um, this demonic force, 200 million strong, that goes not out just torturing, but now killing a third of mankind. As we said, demonic beings are quite capable of not just destroying, but also killing, and uh, it will be on full display here. Mankind worship demonic beings, and so they will not only just be tortured and possessed, but they will rather now be killed by them, a third of mankind. Um, and so in the end, you're, you're left with what we started off at the beginning of the tribulation at 8 billion, now reduced to less than half, all with the ending of this judgment. And um, you would think, you know, well, with 2 billion people just killed off, with the amount of bodies left on the ground, the stench, the just the horrific conditions, you would think, well, surely this is what would bring the world to its knees. Surely God would got, have gotten the attention of the world, right? I mean, how else, how else would he get it? But what do we read? What do we read about the heart of mankind after this next judgment? It says in verse 20 and 21, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of, their, repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. That's just so sad. How sad that by and large, the world did not repent of their sin, even after this judgment. The world chose instead to harden their heart towards God they chose to love their sin more than the salvation that God offered them. These final two verses really just highlight the depravity of the heart of man. And I just want to highlight individual things that he um, has against them. The first thing that God has against the remaining population of four billion or less people is that they did not turn away from their demonic worship. I said this before, but they would rather have been possessed and controlled by the forces of Satan than by God. The second thing is that they did not turn away from idol worship. They would rather worship metals, stones, carved images. Than they would rather worship inanimate, inanimate objects than worship the God who created that building material. They did not repent of their murders. At this time, law and order don't exist. At this time, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. At this time, uh, the world has long abandoned any sense of morality. There is just worldwide bloodshed going on. Murder without any consequences. They additionally did not turn away from their sorceries. Interestingly enough, the word sorceries... Uh, in the Greek, if you look at it, is the word for pharmakeia, uh, which from that we get our word pharmacy or pharmaceutics or drugs. You should not be surprised that you see this word appear here. Um, given the context right before this of demonic worship, drugs and demonic worship, you'll find, often go hand in hand. People will use drugs, will take drugs with the, help of, with the hopes that it dulls their senses and it will induce their satanic worship, allowing their minds to go to dark places, allowing their minds to go deep into their witchcraft, allowing their minds to get prepared for their seances and whatever else they wickedly engage in. Drugs and demonic worship often go hand in hand. In fact, many people I see at work, um, patients who come in, are on many, many drugs. And you find that it's not just the drugs anymore that's controlling them. There is voices coming out of them that don't sound human. There are physical abilities and strengths they have that are not human-like. 
Um, I can only describe their behavior as demonic. In the world today, uh, in, this world, in the world this day, they would not repent of their sorceries, of their drug use. Fifth uh, thing he has against them is that they would not repent of their sexual immorality. If you think adultery is bad now, if you think rape, pedophilia, child molestation, bestiality, if you think these are problems now, if you think that these are concerns now, imagine then. Imagine what it will be like then. Sexual perversion will run rampant beyond human belief. And lastly, <clears throat> God holds against them that they did not repent of their thefts. You know, we're concerned today with going to San Francisco or some other major city because of car break-ins or, uh, you know, carjacking, smash and grab, shoplifting. You think it's bad now. Uh, at this time, all integrity, all honesty will be a thing of the past. What's left of the world after this sixth trumpet judgment is that you have a world full of immoral killers who worship Satan and his demons, who are drugged out of their minds, who follow the impulses of their heart, and they steal what isn't theirs. That is what's left of the remaining world. That is the state of the world. But honestly, if you were to tell me that was a description of today's world, it wouldn't feel too far-fetched. It wouldn't be too hard to believe that our society actually has all of these problems. And because of that, I believe the end is very, very near. I believe that Jesus Christ is very soon returning. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, this is your wake-up call. As you think about your life, as you think about how you behave, the things you do, the things you say, the activities you engage in, I want you to be honest with yourself. Are you involved in any or all of these sins that God has accused this world of? Have you repented of your sins or... Are you like the world after the sixth trumpet judgment ends, unrepentant, unwilling to turn from your sin? God has given you this passage today, if you're hearing the message, God has brought forth this message today as a wake-up call, that if you don't trust him, if you don't know him personally, these judgments are in store for you. God is saying, he's pleading with you, stop holding on to your sins, stop loving your sins. Wake up to see the reality that pursuing this kind of lifestyle will lead to destruction. It will lead to eternal damnation. What Satan and his followers want you to believe is harmless, is fun, is pleasurable, is enjoyable, will cost you your eternal soul. Let's just be clear. God hates these sins. God hates the wickedness of this world. And God is bringing about these judgments to bring your attention, to call your attention to the salvation that he offers you. God says it, and I've, I've read it earlier, but I'll say it again. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? And I plead with you, if you don't know him today, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why would you perish in these judgments when God offers you salvation so freely today? Will you turn to him today for that salvation? And if you know Jesus Christ personally, this passage should compel us to speak up. The world is headed to hell. The judgments of God that he has in store for them, they're shocking. They're fearful. And as a believer, you should feel burdened for the lost souls of this world. I don't know how we can read a chapter like this or a passage like this and go about living our lives as if this is not the coming reality for all unbelievers. Out of love for a person's eternal soul, share that good news that Jesus Christ saves and can deliver them from the wrath to come. Share the news that God loves them so much and desires so badly that they would come to repentance. Share that good news. Let's pray. Lord, we just, we look at this passage and Lord, it's, it's overwhelming, Lord, the destruction and the, the judgment to come, but Lord, we know it's it's to bring about repentance. It's to bring about mankind to their knees to realize their need for you. And Lord, we pray that if anyone doesn't know you, Lord, that they would trust you today, that they wouldn't put it off any longer. Lord, I pray that there wouldn't be a person here today that delays in coming to you today. I pray that they would trust you, be saved from the wrath to come. 
and enjoy this eternal bliss that you offer, the eternal life that you give so freely. I pray, Lord, that uh, as believers, we would just continue sharing that good news to everyone around us, that you do save and you do deliver from the wrath to come. Lord, uh, we also just lift up uh, the food that we're about to eat in this coming uh, time, and we just pray you just bless it to our bodies, just bless uh, our fellowship together, and just bless us the rest of the day. In your name I pray. Amen.